I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. I am so thrilled to be joined today by Dave Eggers, who is the author of many books, among them The Circle, The Companion to the Every, and also The Monk of Mocha, A Hologram for the King, What is the What, and The Museum of Rain. He's a co-founder of 826 National, a network of youth writing centers, and Voice of Witness, an oral history book series that illuminates the stories of those impacted by human rights crises. Dave, it's so wonderful to talk to you today. Nice to be here. Dave, your, your latest novel, The Every, is available in hardcover from McSweeney's on October 5th. And it's only available for purchase from indie bookstores and McSweeney's.net, not Amazon. Tell me about the decision to give indie bookstores the exclusive. Well, McSweeney's uh, is a little publishing company um, that would not exist without the support of independent bookstores um back in the day i you know i lived in brooklyn in 98 and that's when mcsweeney started and back then i used to just bring boxes of the journal like issue one of this quarterly on the subway and go from bookstore to bookstore to say Mm. here's this thing do you want to carry it and even then the difference between the human-to-human personal decision-making that an indie could do and the uh, uh, sort of corporate, centralized, dehumanized way that the chains and other, you know, places like Amazon handled things was, uh, that difference was so stark and so... um, uh, well, it's spiriting when you were trying mm-hmm. to, you know, distribute a little journal through uh, those channels. And so um, 
back then, uh, it just became clear that the only way that we were going to exist and continue was through this symbiotic relationship with Indies, where we could call them on the phone or walk in and talk to a real person and say, can you handle this book or will you carry this journal? <clears throat> and yeah. so now we're, it's almost 25 years that we've had this relationship. And um, this book, The Every, is sort of about the power of monopoly Yes. what happens when we continue to empower monopolies. And so it seemed to me a, an opportunity to uh, maybe direct customers back to their independent bookstore, especially after this pandemic when the power of Amazon and other monopolies has only grown stronger and I think more um, uh, potentially catastrophic to uh, retail biodiversity. I love that the um, protagonist in the every has coined the phrase benevolent monopoly to describe yeah, yeah. the every, which is a company that that's sort of like, what if something like Facebook acquired an unnamed e-commerce giant, something like Amazon, and, and they melded together? And that really struck me because one of the things that I do a lot is encourage people to shop at indie bookstores and for them to be patient, especially now during the pandemic. Um, and always there's someone who says, but Amazon puts their customers first and they provide the best service and they feel like Amazon is doing them a favor. And we value convenience so much, so often um, over the the stuff that really matters. Well, and you also have to start with maybe we break out books first and say mm -hmm. Amazon has never been a bookseller in any no. way that they actually care about books. It's a it's another product, and they sell them under cost, you know, they sell them for wholesale, basically. Yeah. So they're, they're undercutting all the indies that cannot do that because their profit comes from, uh, you know, um, from charging the, the, the cover price for the book, as they should. And so Amazon loses money and has always lost money on the sales of books so that they could acquire customers and push out independent uh, booksellers and other competitors. So that's predatory pricing, yeah, which yeah. is not uh, ethical or legal, really. Um, and so it's subject to antitrust laws, and they should have been regulated 20 years ago. And just to say, listen, you have to play by the rules. You've got to charge the, the price on the cover. You have to pay taxes on states where you <laughs> operate, where they don't do these things. Yeah. I don't know how in God's name they've gotten away, for, away with it for this long, but people have to know that um, if you're ordering books through Amazon, <clears throat> a lot of people are being hurt. Like yeah. the indies are being hurt, publishers are being hurt, authors are being hurt. And ultimately, if they continue to gain market share, it's going to be a cataclysm for the publishing industry and for authors. It's not good. You need people that care about books to be selling books. Absolutely. And I, I see this supply chain crisis coming, um, 
towards the book world. And I can see that people would think, oh, I should buy an ebook. And most ebooks that you're going to find, unless you really try, are, are going to be for the Kindle from Amazon. And um, there seem to be circumstances that make the easy option um, more and more appealing as things will get harder. And that seems like um, a perfect opportunity to say, okay, slow down. We have to um, make sure the Indies survive. Yeah, I mean, they've done, Amazon has done, a, you know, a brilliant job of, of acquiring all of these sort of secondary markets like eBooks, they use books, uh, they bought a, you know, books, they own Goodreads, mm -hmm. all of these different aspects of the publishing industry. So pretty soon you're surrounded, yeah. <laughs> including the eBooks. And it's very hard, like you say, it's very hard to put out an eBook and get it seen unless you're dealing somehow with the Kindle and with Amazon's distribution networks. And so um, it's, uh, it takes a real effort to yeah. some extent to sort of work around them. And it took us so much effort. It's been so hard yeah. to distribute this book without them because everybody has contracts with them. So you do feel like that's what monopolies are all about, where pretty soon you actually cannot avoid them in some way because they've got their tentacles in every aspect of the business. And, um, but I do think, A, they should be regulated such that they cannot, um, that they have to... Uh, you know, do their math the same way other people do. And they cannot have their books as a lost leader supported by their cloud computing and other profit-making uh, arms of their company. They have to play on a level field. And if so, then um, you're going to find more people. If you get the same price on Amazon that you do in Indies, then that's fair. And maybe Amazon gets customers based on the fact that they can deliver books quickly. That's fair. Fine but they can't do both. They cannot under, undercut, you know, they cannot lose money on every sale and call that fair play. Yeah, it so, seems like in the past 25 years, say, the price that most consumers are willing to pay for a new hardcover has taken, has plummeted um, mostly because of Amazon's price cuts. Right, it's created this totally artificial situation where we think that the cover price is just a starting <laughs> a start of a bargaining uh, uh, session where, um, you know, really the price should be $10 below that um, and include free shipping if you're a prime member, whatever. Um, I just really, I, I find these uh, practices just so unsavory. And I really sort of like a simple, the price is the price kind yeah. of economic system. And um, especially when it comes to a public good, which is the publishing industry, we need uh, a wide and you know free market. We need of ideas and uh, we need to be able to you know, support um, uh, new entries into that market and make it easy yeah. for them. Uh, to get their work out there without always having to bow before one company. And the more 
more the power grows, the more we're going to find it very difficult um, for new entrants to uh, to exist and to, and, and, and to enter that market. And so um, I think that we can make a choice, though. There's still, what, 1,100 or so independent bookstores in the country. Yes, yes. Uh, in a lot of cities, they're all over the place. In New York City, we've had a real resurgence since the mm-hmm. beginning of the century. And um, in San Francisco, obviously, we have so many. Um, and so you just make a, make a choice. Go in there and, and pay the price on the cover and say you're going to participate in an ethical marketplace and pay the price so that the publisher can pay their rent and the author can be paid properly and that we retain some sort of balance. Um, if we continue to feed the apex predator in this situation, then that all, that's all we're going to have. We're not going to have a wide diversity of stores and publishers and authors and all that stuff were going to be uh, just feeding the one um, insatiable beast at the top. And that doesn't bode well for, uh, you know, what I call retail biodiversity. Yeah. I mean, watching Penguin Random House grow over the past decades, um, it is worrisome. Like the, the idea that book publishers have to join together to, to tackle this beast by creating what is effectively close to another monopoly is, is yeah. scary. That's the, that's, that's the byproduct yeah. of the empowering of one monopoly is that you have to create other conglomerates, you know, mm. it's, uh, it's like King Kong versus Godzilla, sort of, you know, and there's very, yeah. and everybody else is running uh, madly on the streets trying not to get stepped on. You know, it's, uh, I think that we've got to, and it does have to start at the government level. They've been completely advocating their responsibility to monitor and enforce antitrust laws. And I think with Lena Khan. In the Biden administration, I think yes. that we have better team than we've had for a while that might actually say, well, actually, we have laws on the books that we could easily enforce. And um, we have models for ways to do things. Like in France, for example, you cannot discount a book. You right. have to pay the cover price. The retailers have to do it. And it's so simple. It's like, why not just charge the price on the book? And then we can maintain... You know, uh, we can make sure that this public good, which is the publishing, printing, distribution of new ideas, is uh, healthy. Um, it's just that simple. Pay the price. And of course, that. if you can't afford the the price of a hardcover, which I mean, fair enough, there is the library. <laughs> we do have libraries. They yes. are <laughs> they're right there. It's. That's what they were meant for. And very often they're buying 10 copies of a new book so that everybody can, can get to them. But yeah, there are so many choices, you know, and they rent ebooks too, you know? So um, yes, your, your choices are endless in terms of, you know, uh, supporting forces other than the one monopoly. Yeah. Dave, let's talk a little bit more about the every, um, which it really feels like, a zombie novel just the way that The Circle did. <laughs> a zombie novel. <laughs> uh, 
I hadn't heard that. I want to hear more about that. Oh, just um, when all of the good guys are, are, you know, coming together to take down the enemy and then they're turned. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Um, but but you, it, it's, it's so believable that someone can be quote-unquote turned because we see it happen all the time in real life. Um, th there are so many things that, that Amazon specifically can offer. Like there are literary organizations that are strapped for cash all the time and getting a grant from Amazon would make a huge difference, like a couple thousand dollars. And you can't blame them for taking it and then depending on it. And yet, talk to me about the idea at the every where the people at the top really seem to have this absolute belief that they're making the world a better place. Well, I don't know if it's just at the top. I think mm -hmm. it's run throughout. I, you know, there's 10, 15,000 people working at this fictional company called the every. And I do want to emphasize it is sort of it's not based on any one company. Sure. Really want to make sure that I get to sort of write the book I want to write as opposed to having it owe much to sort of the day-to-day -day functioning of a company that we act, you know, any, any one company that we know. But yeah, in, in this book, Circle has merged with an e-commerce giant. <clears throat> so they've made this sort of, you know, all-encompassing all um all collecting, all aggregating, and knowing uh, company that also has a really powerful footprint in the real world with boats, you know, with shipping and planes and trucks and uh, delivery systems and grocery stores. And so, mm -hmm. um, but it's, I always want to emphasize, and I was trying to do this with the circle too, that most of the bad ideas don't come from the top. They come from the bottom or the middle or the right. newest employee or a company that this monopoly acquires. Um, in the last, you know, I've been in the Bay Area for 25 years, and I would say the vast majority of the worst ideas I've heard come from like a 26-year-old engineer who's hoping <laughs> to sell their idea and cash in, uh, sell their idea to one of the big five tech companies and cash in. I have heard just like the most gaspingly crazy ideas and invasive and privacy shredding ideas from the nicest, kindest, most normal seeming people who are reading the lay of the land and they're saying, well, what's next? What might uh, come next? What could I uh, invent that might be sold to this company? And not necessarily thinking what does the world need or what's the right thing or what's the ethical thing, but more like where are things headed? And I get a, a few feet ahead of the trend, uh, invent some app and then sell it. And so 
in the every, there's this, you know, our protagonist is Delaney Wells, and she goes into this company thinking that she wants to blow it up from within. But one of the ways that she does that is to think, like, I'm going to invent the worst ideas that I can possibly <laughs> conjure. It's a good strategy. Yeah, right? And and I'm going to see if they'll be adopted by this company, disseminated by them. And definitely when they're out in the world, uh, humanity will say, oh, God, that's way too far. That's yeah. enough. I can't believe that you would do that. I'm going to leave you and your monopoly and uh, uh, in disgust. But again and again, that doesn't happen. You know, she invents silly apps, you know, like one where it will tell you if you enjoyed the meal you just ate and people <laughs> love it. And, uh, it'll tell you if your uh, <clears throat> uh, sexual performance is up to snuff and how it compares to your friends and neighbors. And that one is uh, embraced readily and uh, used heartily. And she invent something called friendly that it'll tell you if your friends are trustworthy by analyzing, you know, dozens of data points and, uh, and the tonalities of your voice and, and facial expressions and posture. And that seems to be, that will be the bridge too far, but of course it's not. People love it. And so I think that my emphasis is always not really like what do the tech companies do to us, mm-hmm. but how do we respond and how are we complicit? And when, if ever, will we say that's a line that we can't cross? And um, for the most part, there hasn't really been any resistance to any developments in the last 20 years, you know? Um, which has been really interesting to see. There isn't anything where we... I mean, every so often there's something. Google Glass got run out of town. Yes. Something. But now it's back. Facebook has their Ray-Ban sunglasses. And, and I think that, you know, usually these companies will do one run. There might be resistance. They take another run at it five, ten years later. And then by then, the surrounding resistance has fallen away and you're just dealing with a few lunatic stalwarts who say that's too far, but humanity as a whole has gotten used to a level of surveillance that makes these cameras tolerable. So that's a long answer. I'm sorry, Matt. No, that's fine. I mean, the other um, example of a failure that I like to invoke um, with book people is the Amazon book imprint. Um, that was supposed to be run like a New York publisher. And its failure gives me hope that there are still subjective qualities about good books that they are not able to capture through data. For now. For now. now. I I also was heartened by that uh, failure. and back in the day, Barnes and Noble did their own, you know, editions of classics and stuff, and that was not a success. Um, the book publishing industry is full of incredibly dedicated people yeah. that are generally underpaid, um, full of bright young editors who 
are searching for the next new voice that, and it's like the mother load, you know, if you find a new author that has never been published, or if you can rediscover an author who's mm-hmm. maybe been, you know, underappreciated, you know, that's why every, that's why we all get up in the morning and read the submissions that come through the mail or, you know, and that's the beauty of the whole publishing world. You know, it's just from top to bottom full of really um, uh, people motivated by really the right thing. Um, and uh, I get letters, you know, got, I got a letter yesterday from um, David Ebershoff at Hogarth mm-hmm. Publishing and he was publishing a new, you know, a, well, a young writer. He's published a book of poetry called Javier Zamora, who I knew as a high school kid um, mm. here in San Francisco. And his letter about Javier's new book, Saluto, was so passionate and so uh, just like you felt like uh, his whole heart and soul was in trying to get this book out into the world and to, to an audience. And, um, you know, the, the publishing world is just full of these people that um, that's all they want. It's like, yes. how do you lift up this text? How do you get it out into the world? How do you send it off and, you know, give it an audience? Um, it's worthy of it. And so it's a, I love the publishing world. I just love the people who work at every level of it from the, uh, from the editors to the editorial systems, to the copy editors, the designers, the salespeople, the booksellers, from top to bottom, it's just a good group of people. And so when that ecosystem is threatened, I get pissed off. And um, yes, uh, Same. And if ever we, you know, we, you know, there's fewer editors per book than there used to be. They're trying to cut corners wherever they can because the margins are slimmer every year. And, um, but so to, to maintain that world where the editors are paid to look for new voices and that the whole, that the system can support these new voices, we have to make these choices about supporting them yeah. and paying the, the correct price for not, not to belabor that point, but yes. the David Eppershoffs and Javier Zamora's don't exist without, um, Hogarth and without these imprints and without uh, uh, their, their support system to say, all right, our job is to find and lift up new voices. Um, and if we give all the power <clears throat> to a monopoly that doesn't have any editors and doesn't care about books and treats them like widgets, then that entire ecosystem, all of that infrastructure falls away. Yeah. I, I also see in the book world that more and more publishers want to use data, want to make informed decisions based on numbers. And the best books, of course, have always been unquantifiable or haven't followed the right formula or wouldn't show up in the algorithm. Right. Well, I have a whole chapter where yes. a staffer named Alessandro, who's you know, espousing all of the uh, the glories of algorithmic thinking to improve mm-hmm. books. 
and all stories. And you see a little bit of it in the film world now, and you're going to see more of it when um, uh, tech companies more and more are owning film studios. They're, they can't help themselves but to use data to inform uh, decision-making about you know, how films are made. What, pe- what do people like? Well, they seem to like beaches, so we're going to have more movies about beaches. This movie that took place in Baltimore didn't do well, so Baltimore's out as a setting. Sure. Uh, I mean, some of this has, you know, been in the film world beginning, but uh, more and more, I think our worship and our endless faith in, in data is going to seep into um, what is, uh, you know, what gets made. And I think, you know, I took it to a logical extreme with that, um, uh, with that chapter where they're giving more power to AI to write uh, books even and write the parts that don't need the human intervention. Um, and, uh, and to say like, well, everything can be and maybe should be a formula. Why don't we follow a formula, give people what they want, um, and we can help authors by saying, according to our ebook research people are putting your book down on page 123 yep um what's on 123 that you could fix (laughs) you know and because this data is acquirable it will be used you know and um there's never an area that's cordoned off by you know the tech world they don't say well of course we shouldn't be getting ourselves involved in the humanity you know that's not our place they always think that there's a technological solution uh, or an improvement that could be made or a tool that could be that could be applied um, to an otherwise mysterious or um, you know world like what makes a book uh, love what makes people finish a book well we, we will not know that. No. You know, we can guess at it, but, but that's not going to stop. And the, but the um, inclination to want to fix, quote unquote, Jane Eyre <laughs> will live on in the tech world as long as, this is a side note, but I love that Alessandro calls them fiction novels because that's a phrase that we definitely hear from tech people a lot. Yeah, I hear it too. <laughs> <laughs> I, and you know, wait, are you? Did this happen, or did this not happen? Why are they writing about things that actually didn't happen? Oh, I love it. You know, but I, it's it's just that you know, I I fight this uh, this new trend toward uh, grading student papers by mm. algorithm. AI is increasingly grading student essays, um, and that's an area that should never have been entered by computers it's so offensive and so um uh uh, inherently absurd because these machines cannot read they admit that they can't read all they're doing is scanning for keywords and um but and yet because our faith in tech has grown by you know just unimaginable levels uh in the last 20 years um people don't even question the right of machines to grade students' papers. And I think the most disturbing thing of all is that on the other end, I think a lot of students uh, would prefer it. 
And mm. this is one of the big themes of the book. And this yeah. is where, you know, again, I'm always trying to think about what our, how are we complicit and how have we changed to where we're sort of meeting these larger powers in the middle. You know, yeah. we're not just oppressed by them because we're giving them a lot of power. And one of the things is that we're not comfortable with subjectivity the same way we used to be. Yeah. You know, um, students are like, well, what gives you the right to grade my paper? You know, what, you know what, who are you to say that this is a B or a B minus? And um, why don't we have a fairer system? And a fair system would seem to be AI that's objective and insentient and um, and is just using a a set of inputs and um, that that we can all agree on. Did I meet the word count? Is it five paragraphs? Did I do all of these things? Well, then give me the A. You know. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel like not just in that world, but in so many worlds, people are more and more uncomfortable with human decision making. I mean, I love the part in the book when um, Delaney um, proposes, or maybe she didn't propose, let me rephrase. Um, when Delaney encounters a, an app that um, objectively um, tells you what is beautiful, <laughs> which, right. which is like just the most, yes, of course. Um, th- the complete absence of subjectivity in deciding, you know, what is art and and, and what makes you happy uh, in favor of here are the numbers. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm going to make you a bet and we can come back in 10 years somehow. And I'm going to say that in 10 years, you will see this exact AI system. And you're going to see it applied in a lot of schools. I went to art school for a little bit. And I know that uh, there are art students uh, walking among us right now that would vastly prefer an AI system to judge the merit of their work rather than some, you know, gray-haired painter whose work they don't like. You know, (laughs) they would say, well, why are... Why do I have to submit to this person's gatekeeping? You know, why don't we have an unbiased system where it's just uh, objective and we can judge the symmetry and uh, color balance and composition and, you know, and there's just one set of rules that we all abide by and it's non-changing and, and, uh, and, and without bias. And so, um, and so, you know, increasingly we are ceding decision-making to AI and to algorithms for, for profit on the one hand, because these things are wildly profitable to create, and, uh, but also because the people being judged sometimes prefer the reported accuracy and the perceived lack of objectivity. Um, and I think that that's where I was trying to get at with this book is like, you know, we, we're changing so much as a species so quickly and our faith in numbers and our hunger to have things numerified, you know, give Mm -hmm. me the, give me the quality of this book down to the hundredth decimal point, 
you know, and which, you know, is a system that exists out there, as you know, you know, this book, the aggregated ratings of this book make it an 87.35. Now, yes. 40 years ago, this would be so far beyond dystopian fiction. Nobody would believe that people had applied a numerical system to the hundredth decimal point to judge the merit of books. And yet we think of it as just uh, a democratizing and uh, wonderful participatory system <laughs> that we have. And of course, and, and, and we treat some of it with a grain of salt, but more and more we say, well, that's, that's it. You know, that's, this movie is an 87 and that book is a 73. And, um, and we don't question whether it's right at all to apply a number to a wild, mysterious, ungovernable kind of thing like a novel. And so with the every, um, at least in the first month and a half, um, you are giving people the directive to go to their local indie and just talk to whoever they meet and ask them about what makes them excited. And that seems like a, a great first step in um, remembering uh, that the subjective can be <laughs> gratifying. Right. Yeah, I mean, I... Uh... I had I was in a bookstore a few weeks ago getting some books for a friend, and um, all I ended up doing was getting four books that had those little recommendation cards mm. um, to them because I uh, I needed I don't know I just was like I got caught up in the the excitement of the booksellers writing about some books that I didn't know and. Uh, uh, and, and I think that um, there's something very calming and kind of uh, appropriate, I guess, about sort of going into a store and it's just a handful of people that work there and they could be doing other things. They could be trying to work at a tech company maybe and making five times, 10 times the money. But instead, they're in this sort of little haven of, of free thought and uh, paper and... Um, blue and um and human and they're there because they love uh one thing you know which is books uh, i love that and and dave yeah. this this is the logical time now then to say do you have books to recommend to us yes um you know i always have to mention the books that we publish. I, of course. I, I, you know, we have a series called Voice of Witness and there's a new book called Me Maria, with narratives from uh, Puerto Rican uh, uh, survivors of the uh, Hurricane Maria. And um, uh, it's an amazing book of oral histories that puts you right in the thick of before, during, and after, and um, if you love Puerto Rico, uh, if you love um, uh, uh, gripping stories, and if you were outraged by uh, 
the governments, our governments, uh, and the Puerto Rican government's reaction to the storm, um, then you have to read that book. I think that there's, no matter what you know on a subject, when you read a Voice of Witness book, you learn immeasurably from these first-person stories. Um, Where? We also published a book at uh, McSweeney's called Ivory Shoals by John Brandon and um, came out a few months ago. And I think that there is no better writer of sentences today than John Brandon. This is a story that takes place right after the Civil War in central Florida. There's a young boy living, uh, you know, raised by uh, a mother who dies and he goes looking for the father he never knew in a sort of a Huck Finn sort of way, making his way across the swamps of Florida to find this, uh, this man. And um, it's gorgeously written. And um, uh, I just think John Brandon deserves every reader he can possibly get. I've never met anyone that didn't love his work once they discovered it. Sounds wonderful. Dave, thank you so much. Um, be sure to visit your indie bookseller or bookshop.org and uh, get your copy of The Every. And um, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Maris. It's been great to talk to you. You too. Safe travels. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.